Hello, my name is Zachary Trailer, and you are listening to Morning Voice, A Political Journey. Episode number 24, Conspiracy Theories. Today, I'm bringing to you, I'm going to bring you down to another, more elusive and darker world. The underbelly of politics, known as conspiracy theories. If I were to tell you that HOAs were created by the government so that counties could sell off your rights as taxpayers to private companies, or that meatpacking companies paid millions in the 1800s to reshape education into the mess we see today, or even the more outlandish, outlandish theory that the Federal Reserve is not owned by the U.S. government, but rather the world's largest banks. These ideas and theories, when spoken of, are only seen in hypotheticals, abstracts, as otherwise you would be seen as an out-of-box thinking nut job, labeled similar to your crazy uncle, who is so scared of authority, he finds a ghost in every shadow. So let's dive into each of these theories and see what their purported followers claim. According to the theorists, starting in the 1960s and 70s, there was a sharp rise in municipal expenditures, along with a decline in revenue. So private companies came in and started building houses, but they kept the land rights in perpetuity through HOAs, similar to how a con- how when you purchase a condo, even after paying off your mortgage, you still owe an obligation similar to taxes every year. The same thing is done in HOAs. Private companies come in and claim that they will help maintain the vibes of the community, making sure lawn care, roads, utilities are taken care of, tasks normally assigned and thought of as those by the government. Well, when taxes started to decrease, while expenditures in suburban America went up, these new developments were given the option by cities to hold this power, usually reserved for themselves, but in exchange, they'd be provi- they would have to provide basic services such as roads, utilities, and nowadays, internet connection. And a bonus is, since this is a private contract, you can see HOA regulations more strict and arcane than anything a government could ever legally pass. Homeowners, however, were quickly to buy into this, as they were marketed by the cities as a nicer alternative to homeownership with the benefits of a perceived higher quality of life. Think about it. When you are told by the government that this new development, with all the whistles and bells that that were up and coming in those decades, that they would cost similar or less than that of a typical home, why wouldn't you take it? And so, the cycle grew as counties divided themselves up and sold to private companies who quickly themselves sold shares to Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock, relieving stress temporarily on the city budget, giving consumers a better product in the short term, and and these companies now had the backing of governments to expand, imposing whatever regulations they want, including discrimination, and profits were were high as upfront costs were low. The cycle continued until finally the government required all homes be a part of an HOA, 
codifying businesses, business rights, and selling consumers down the river. All new homes must be a part of an HOA. And today, we are paying the bill as these short-term profits cost our community millions in lost revenue, leading to the decay and lack of maintenance in our roads, and helping raise housing costs through fees and hidden tolls. All of which led to us seeing a quick deterioration of our infrastructure as investment firms cared little for higher future maintenance as they could raise these HOA fees uh, and have them covered by homeowners who were trapped in 30-year mortgages. The spineless leaders of yesterday selling our futures away instead of growing a spine and making a hard but necessary decision. Of course, this compares a little to the century-long meatpacking plan to indoctrinate students into becoming perfect butchers in the slaughterhouses within cities. The meat and agriculture industry, according to this theory, has advocated that what happened prior after the Civil War in the 1800s, with the Chicago beef industry rising and children being banned from working underage, we saw a sharp rise in school attendance. This led to a massive pressure as schools who had always been a community-oriented building where only a few teachers taught the youngest the basics and the oldest the, mo- the, the current knowledge, with older students expected to teach the younger ones, creating a cycle of knowledge and trust within the community. This was impossible, teachers said, with this new influx of students. There were not enough people to teach, the curriculum was too outdated, and the system was not prepared to see millions and millions, a near 100% attendance rate for urban and suburban students, uh, children. And in popped the slaughterhouse lobbyists. Needing workers, they saw the possibility of training children for eight years to become the perfect butchers in their factory. And so they created a rigid structure and hierarchy that prior to was informal. Instead of relying on students' curiosity and nurturing their desire to learn, it was replaced instead with grades seen in factories. It is our grades in school that suspiciously mimic that of beef quality. Why should a grade A describe both a steak and my test score? Beyond grades, both for tests and academic levels, they help to make nice, neat boxes where students learn to be seen but not heard, quickly broken into the life of a factory worker as they learn to never question authority, sit in rows and columns that are neat, and to memorize and copy the same topics and tasks relentlessly instead of inquiring and learning as we had for hundreds of years. While this theory is spicy, I think it falls short as it sounds too make-believe. I mean, would butchers really invest that much time and energy into our schools just for a couple new butchers and workers? Which is why this last theory is my favorite, as there's a believable motive. The Federal Reserve, who tried to keep the economy in order and print our money, is not in fact owned by Congress, the President, or frankly any part of the United States government. Instead, it has its... It, sh- it has shares of it owned by Wells Fargo, Chase, and every other major bank in America. According to theorists, the system was designed around the secret meeting of J- J.P. Morgan 
and all the other banks in America during the late 1800s. So picture this. Prior to our Great Depression, there was a 20-year-long recession known as the original Great Depression, now known as the largest bank panic of the 1800s. The economy was about to collapse, and the titan of banking himself personally locked ever locked brought together and locked the richest bankers in the country in one room and forced them to work out a loan to the government in order to save the country and they did it this is historical fact this is where the speculation comes in several decades later under president woodrow wilson in the 1910s as world war one is raging and the economy is teetering on collapse They had a choice to either establish a new Bank of the United States, however, based on the track record of the first two, that was seen as a non-starter, as both had failed. Or to create a company that formalized the process of what J.P. Morgan had done several decades earlier. And they'd hoped this would help keep the the country's economy on track. This time, however... These banks, instead of being locked in a room, would instead be invested and have interest in this company through owning shares of the reserve. And this would allow them to have a say in the money supply, inflation rate, and and overall monetary policy for our country. But also, it would give them a thumb on the scale under the guise of helping the people. And who could say no to that kind of power? When the, co- when the government presented it to them, especially when it would allow them to outcompete their competition in, a, in the decades a- uh, following the, antitrust, the Sherman Antitrust Act and old, te- old Teddy Roosevelt himself. And so the Federal Reserve was born, free of government intervention and giving bankers a leg up as who better to guide the economy than those least in touch with it. And here's the kicker. All three of these outlandish, more of an exercise in philosophy or a length the human mind can, ima- can go in imagining things, are all, th- are all three real. In the 1970s, North Carolina passed a law mandating all new housing developments have an HOA created, eliminating choice and forcing private companies into the lives of millions of North Carolinian residents. Individual homes may be allowed to be built without an HOA but all new developments must. In 1893, the Committee of Ten was created that, based on recommendations from meatpacking experts and other economic giants, proposed standardizations and industrialization of our schools, replacing community-based learning with a strong emphasis on core curricula, along with skills needed at local factories, and along with the grading based on food standards. And even the Federal Reserve, known by many as, our, as the economic brain in our country, is in fact owned through shareholders, of which all are private banks. Though there is an oversight committee, and Congress along with the President does appoint the Federal Reserve Chair, they, <clears throat> they are banned from auditing their books, the actions, and they operate outside of the executive branch. The U.S. dollar is owned by private companies. And yet saying this places many nasty labels atop your head. 
These conspiracies are not theory, but genuine fact, and to many, terrifying ones. We must help educate our fellow countrymen, as only when the true extent of the system's entrenchment has been exposed can we start to excavate and rebuild from a, its shaky foundation. Today I want to talk about Douglas Byrd and his legacy as a community ad advocate. That's how we will end this Friday show. Born and bred amid the rolling hills of North Carolina, Douglas Byrd emerged as a figure synonymous with community stewardness, stewardship, and unwavering dedication. His story begins in the heart of Fayetteville, where he served his country in Fort Bragg, and where the seeds of his service were sown deep within his soul. A son of the Carolinas, Byrd's journey, eventually ending him in the governorship. This journey to Capitol Hill was a testament to his unwavering commitment to his constituents. As a Democratic member of the United States House of Representatives, he echoed the voices of North Carolinians from the bustling streets of Fayetteville and on Skybo to the corridors of power in Washington. His tenure was marked by a fervent advocacy for education and military affairs, recognizing the fundamental role they played in shaping the community and the fabric it's woven from. Byrd's unwavering support for educational reforms and his tireless efforts in fortifying the military echoed the very heartbeat of this region. But perhaps, in the echoes of his legislative actions, lies a profound message, a message that resonates even today. For Douglas Byrd's legacy isn't just about the past. It's about a ripple of hope, and it's a beacon lighting the way forward. His dedication to protecting the community, nurturing its growth, and safeguarding the aspirations of its people so that the next generation always has opportunities we never had. When we look at this, one, that one finds that resonates in our hearts, especially when looking at the camp, my campaign. As we navigate the currents of change, and chart a course for our future. Let the ripple of hope guide us. It's in the spirit of community advocacy that we embark a legacy that propels us to protect, empower, and uplift our communities. In honoring the path paved by Douglas Byrd, we embrace the responsibilities safeguarding the very essence of our neighborhoods and echo his commitment to our shared home. Through only, only through good citizen governance can we truly be America's all-American city. Thank you.